Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tonight I want to share a few personal thoughts in closing out this Beyond the Summer of Love series. And I want to kind of tell you a personal narration, my personal story. I want to begin with that. Because you see, during the summer of love, it sort of passed me by. I was only 11 years old, going on 12. I take it that's the picture. During that 1967 summer of love. I was just a little kid. But I did remember it happening, and I did have a brother who was living in San Francisco, not far from Haight-Ashbury, when that whole thing broke out. And he told me the crazy stories. But though I was young at the time, I was entering into a very uncertain and dangerous phase in my life. I was, I was in the next few years, going to be very experimental. Because though I was raised in a religious home... I was searching for my own purpose, my own meaning. I wanted to be an individual and find out who God was, if there was a God, and what life meant. And probably like every teenager, I tried different things to achieve that. Now, I say like most teenagers. I don't know that most teenagers did exactly what I did or all the things I did, which is a good thing because there were some stupid things that I did. But I remember distinctly getting a book on auto-hypnosis, self-hypnosis. And it was a, a way that I could achieve an altered state of consciousness in a hypnotized state because I heard of doctors who brought their patients under a hypnotic state. And when I found that there was a book that I could do it myself, and I had a certain kind of power and control to achieve an altered state of consciousness and thereby finding things that I had lost for several months, I was into it. And I did a few episodes of that, found it to be indeed very powerful. I did find things that I had lost. And it was so enjoyable because it was an experience and an experiment that I went on to another thing called astral projection. Now, though I was going to church, obviously I was not a saved individual. Astral projection is soul travel. It's the idea that your soul leaves your body, travels to some part of the universe. And of course, I used to freak people out when I would tell them who didn't believe in it, I will, I will travel into your house tonight, having never been, and I will tell you next week exactly what your house looked like. And I did. It was scary, crazy, altered state of consciousness. And again, I felt very powerful. The third thing that I did as a young teenager, about 16 years of age, was when I was in Mazatlan, Mexico, not on a cruise from a Christian church, but this time on a field trip with my high school Spanish class, I decided, a buddy and I, to try something called spirit writing. Spirit writing... Please understand how demonic that is, is where you ask the spirit world of which you believe you to be a part of, because at that time I believed that I was a spirit inhabiting a body, but that my spirit had lived in several bodies before 
and I would live in other bodies afterwards. I believed in the transmigration of the soul or reincarnation. I asked the spirit world to inhabit my body. I asked the spirits to inhabit my body, control my arm, and write me messages of who I was, where I came from, what my past lives had been. And at first it was just this strange trance-like exercise and eventually my hand started moving and made no sense, just scribble, scribble, scribble on a piece of paper. But eventually a message came out. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't tell what it was until I awoke from the trance and read what I wrote. And I read what supposedly the spirits were telling me, that I had lived in a previous lifetime in the Franco-Prussian War. I was a soldier uh, on the Austrian side. I was killed in that battle. And then I went into this body, and now I'm in this body. And that also said that I was going to die on my way back to California. We took a train down. And so I had to go to my Spanish teacher and say, uh, Mr. Guzman, I, I can't travel with you back to California on the train. And he said, well, why? Now, how do I explain the reason to my Spanish teacher after a night of spirit writing. It just wouldn't go over well. So I said, look, I can't explain it to you, but I just can't go back. And he said, I'm responsible for you. You're, you're under age and you're under my care. You're going back. Well, I went back and obviously I did not die, but I lived in morbid fear day after day, week after week, month after month. And so something dawned on me. What dawned on me is this. Here I am, raised in a religious home, and I have a hunch that what I'm doing, though I like it and it's powerful, is not good. That's the understatement of the century. This can't be good. And then I thought, if there's this much power on the dark side, on the wrong side, how much power must there be on the right side? On God's side. That, that, that thought stuck in my heart and in my head. Well, what happened to me, it was the summer of 1973 when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And it was a sincere receiving of Christ, asking Him to forgive my sins, inviting Him in as Lord and Savior. And I started growing. That was the year when I left high school and I was applied to San Jose State University, Northern California, but I didn't go to San Jose State because something happened to me. I got saved. And in getting saved, I wanted to go back home to my family, and I wanted to go back home to my friends, and I wanted to tell them they need Jesus too. Which didn't go over very well like I thought it would. But I do remember those following years were years of growth for me. I grew in a number of ways. I grew intellectually as I was learning um, sciences, radiology. That's what I was majoring in for the medical field. I grew in my own personal spirituality. I grew in Bible study and in Bible knowledge. And I discovered that what happened to me at salvation is that I understood real love. I had a genuine love for God and I had a deeper love for people, a spiritual love for people that I had never known before. And now that love is growing in me. And my love for God is growing. My love for his word is growing. My love for God's people is growing. But I also noticed 
that a certain kind of love was not growing but was shrinking. And that was my love for the things of this world. The things that I once loved, I didn't love as much anymore. The things I loved to do before, like that nonsense of experimental spirituality, the drugs and all of those experiences, they didn't have the same satisfaction. I didn't love them anymore. It was being replaced, usurped, if you will, by a higher love. And I'll tell you what it's like. It's like if you have never in your life eaten a good steak dinner, a great filet mignon, add a lobster to that, done just perfectly, grilled to perfection. Let's say you've never had that before, but you've lived your whole life on TV dinners and Hamburger Helper. That's all you knew. And finally, you tasted a steak and lobster dinner. Your life will never be the same. It's hard to go back to Hamburger Helper after that. And I had a filet mignon the night I received Christ, and I just didn't want to go back to Hamburger Helper. All those things of the world lost their appeal to me. I started growing away from them, and I started growing in the things of the Lord. Now, that was my summer of love. It wasn't 67 or 69. It was 1973 for me. I fell in love with Jesus, and I understood his love for me. But, Within a few short years, my love would be tested. It was tested severely at the death of my brother who died in a motorcycle accident when I was a brand new believer, just a couple years old in the Lord, a young man. My father called me and said, your brother was killed instantly tonight in a motorcycle wreck. It was unbelievable. I didn't know what to do with it. My heart sank. He was the closest family member in my family to me. The night my love was tested was the day of my brother's funeral. Because you see, after the funeral, my father, who was a very austere man and raised us in a very austere manner, and I wondered how much he loved or accepted us, my dad was struggling deeply with my brother's death. Because he was struggling with a relationship with my brother that was a strained relationship. It was not a good relationship. And after the funeral, my dad, in confusion, no doubt, and deep emotion, turned to me in, in front of the whole family and said, Skip, you're going to hell. Now, my heart was already broken enough with my brother's death, but the announcement that I was going to hell by my father shook me, tested my love for him at that moment. I had all sorts of things I wanted to come back and say. The reason he said that is because he said, you're not going to heaven because you've quit going to the Catholic church. You're now into this new religious experience, whatever it is. There was so much anger that welled up within me. And I knew if ever my love was tested, that was the time. If ever there was a threshold moment for my father to see the love of Christ, it was at that moment. So I did something. 
As soon as he made that horrible announcement, I got up, went right up to my father, face to face, eyeball to eyeball. And I said, Dad, I love you so much. Jesus loves both of us so much. Do you mind if I pray for us? Before he could say no, I put my arms around him and grabbed him and took him to my chest, head to head, and I started praying out loud for healing and reconciliation in our family and between my father and myself. When I said amen, my father had tears running down his cheeks. And he looked at me and he said, that's the most beautiful thing I ever heard. Thank you. The Bible does say a soft answer will turn away wrath. And I watched healing begin and love start flowing in a relationship with my father that I had never known. And the Lord was telling me it must begin with you. And here's what happened, folks. After I said that to my dad and prayed with and for my father, I felt God's love. I genuinely felt something. Before that, I was just saying it because I knew I should say it, but I actually felt that love. I knew it was real. It worked. It works. That summer of love was lasting beyond the summer, into the next year, into the next year, into this horrible experience. Well, I had another summer of love. And that was 1981, when on a hot, hot June afternoon in Southern California, I married Lenya Mae Farley. What a lovely summer that was. When I first met her at a friend's potluck party, I saw her across the room and I thought, I've got to get to know that girl. And I did. I got to know her really well. And she, for the last 28 years, has been my wife. And my heart still skips a beat when she enters the room. It's a summer of love. So now, life for me is getting pretty good. I have a relationship vertically with God and a relationship horizontally with people. My father is healing and family is healing and I have a lovely new wife. You know, if you were to boil life down to its basic components, what I call the irreducible minimum, strip away who you are with your education, your status, strip away where you live, what you've striven to own, all of your possessions and fancy cars or not fancy cars, take it all away, strip life down to its basic irreducible minimum and you have relationships left that's what you have left you have a relationship vertically with god or not and a relationship with people that's good or bad i don't know what your relationship with god is like i honestly don't it's either good or not so good or really bad i don't know what your relationship is like with your husband or wife or friends or children or parents but that's what life is. Life, you see, is all about relationships, vertically with God and horizontally. Now, we have looked at stages of relationships in this series. Maybe the question to end with is, what about the future? 
What will the future look like? What will your future relationships look like? Back in 1969, a couple of guys, one-hit wonders, Zagger and Evans, I believe, wrote a song called In the Year 2525. If man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may find. Anybody remember that song? Okay. At the end of the song, it says something to the effect is, man has lived 10,000 years, man has shed a billion tears over what he knows not, something like that. But it paints a very bleak picture of what the future is going to be like. But let's not go to 2525 or 2535 or 2585 like the song does. Let's just go ahead to 2025. That's 16 years away. What will your family look like? What will your marriage look like? What will your relationships look like? Well, that's the, that's the personal narration. Now, I'm going to read a text of scripture to you. I want to give you a little biblical instruction now. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, a familiar text. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If they fall, one may lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's a beautiful text about human friendships. But I think it has a particular application to the highest form of human friendship, and that is the marriage relationship. Solomon says two are better than one. Now, most married couples, or at least in the very beginning of their marriage, agree on that part. That's why they got married. It's better to be two than one. Will you marry me? Yes. Good. Why? Because two are better than one. That's what they believe, at least at first. But I wonder how much America still believes that two are better than one. And I'm not talking about divorce. I'm talking about marriage. Follow my thinking. In the past 35 years, the number of independent female households in America has increased 26%. The number of independent male households in America has risen 120%. Folks, today, for the first time in American history, less than half of American households comprise married couples. First time in American history. So I wonder how much Americans believe two is really better than one because a lot of Americans are just saying, I'm not going to get married. Or they postpone it till much later. Example, in 1970, 1970, the median age for people getting married the first time for women was 21 years of age, for men 23 years of age. 
In 2009, the median age for marrying the first time for women is 26 and for men is 28. And now it's climbing closer up toward 30. And many people are going, don't want to get married. And they're postponing it. That's the trend that we're seeing in America. And there's reasons for that. People don't feel they're ready. They don't feel they're mature. Of course, one of the things that brings maturity is marriage. One of the things that will grow up people faster than anything is a marriage relationship. So people are postponing the very component that would add real growth to them. But they're saying, well, you know, don't rush it. Uh, you, you can wait a while, go out and have fun, travel first, sow your wild oats, and then, you know, when you get older, there's nothing really left. <laughs> then go ahead and get married. <laughs> Why not travel and experience all of those things together? In fact, if I just look biologically, and I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, the way God has designed us, it would seem that he designed us to marry younger than Americans are marrying and even younger than Christians are telling their children to get married. I'm all for young marriages. As long as they have the right foundation and the right commitment. And I know, listen, you can say, well, I, I don't know if I'm ready. You're never ready for it. Trust me. No one's ever ready for it, but you can be prepared for it. And that's a big difference. You can get prepared and have commitment that'll get you through anything, literally anything. You see, God's design hasn't changed. He still says two are better than one. He still says in his word, it is not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper that's comparable to him. Now, marriage means change. Relationships with anybody means change. And change, face it, means pain. You can't change without pain. You've heard the old saying put out years ago, no pain, no gain. It's true. If you're going to change and God wants you to change and wants me to change, it's going to come by painful experiences and marriage is a good place for that. You'll get enough of that. But here's the secret. If you are committed, ladies and gentlemen, to work past the inconvenience, to work past the adjustments, to work past the differences that exist between us as individuals, to work past the point of pain, your marriage can withstand anything, anything. Work past the point of pain. Work past the inconvenience. Work past the adjustment. Two are better than one. He says, because they have a good reward for their labor. Good reward. Do you know that God wants your marriage to be good? He wants you to have a good reward for this friendship. In fact, it can be not only good. I'm here to tell you after 28 years, it can be absolutely great. It can be great. There was a Peanuts cartoon. 
Charlie Brown? Is he still alive in the cartoons? Okay, so Charlie Brown says, my grandpa and my grandma have been married 50 years. And in the cartoon, Charlie Brown's friend says, wow, they must be lucky. And Charlie Brown says, well, my grandma says it's not about luck, it's about skill. You can have the necessary skills and more than that, the spiritual foundation for a great marriage. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Okay, we've learned from this lesson or we've learned from this series that it's a process, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave or be joined unto his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That's a process. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Leaving father and mother, what that means is every other relationship in life, including the most intimate and closest of all, the one that we have with our parents, all relationships take second, third, and fourth to the primary relationship that has been established, and that is the marriage. Leaving, cutting off, and then cleaving, being joined being welded, and the two shall become one flesh. That's, that's the weaving part. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving. It's not easy. It's not a light switch. It doesn't happen the minute the minister says, I now pronounce you man and wife. Oh, no. It's a lifelong process of weaving together different backgrounds, different personalities, and face it, opposites attract when you wonder, why did I marry him? He's so different than me. That's what attracted you. How did I marry her? I don't get her. Of course, that's the magic of it all. It takes a lifetime of working past the point of pain. And if you say, I hate this pain, I'm leaving the marriage. You'll leave the marriage. If you ever get into another marriage, you'll have pain and then you'll have a choice. Will I work past the point of this pain or will I bail on this one and the next one and the next one? Solomon says, but woe to him who is alone when he falls he will have no one to help him up. It goes on to say, and it closes, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now tonight, after the personal narration and after the biblical instruction, I now want to close with some personal application. Tonight, some are single. Tonight, some of you, some of us, are married. Tonight, some here are divorced, and tonight, some are remarried. It makes us all different, but we have something in common. All of us need Jesus Christ. 
All of us need to build our lives on a solid foundation. No matter what happened in your life up to this stage, we all have a common need, and that is Christ's love and Christ's forgiveness. And folks, because of the cross, they are guaranteed you. Because of what Jesus did, they are guaranteed us. And the difference from this point on between a marriage, a relationship that lasts just a summer, or one that lasts way beyond the summer, is the foundation that you build on. Remember what Jesus talked about? He said there were two types of builders. One built his house on the rock. The other built his house on the sand. And when the rains descended and the winds blew and the storms came, the one built on the sand fell and great was the fall of that house. But the one that built its foundation on the rock withstood the storms and the rain and it did not fall. That's having the right kind of foundation. That doesn't mean if you're a Christian that you're exempt from challenges, exempt from problems, that as Christians, because you're Christians, you'll never face that and you'll never get a divorce. Not at all. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean if you have that foundation and you continually commit to strengthening and building upon that foundation and working through the pain, it can withstand Everything and anything. A few years ago, I was in Paris, and I noticed that they were working on the Eiffel Tower. And I I don't know much about it, but I do know that the Eiffel Tower was built in 1889 for the World's Fair at that time. That was 1889. It's still there. And what they were doing is welding some of the joints that had just loosened and got fatigued over time to strengthen the integrity of the bonds to re-weld what was once bolted or welded over the years. They were strengthening it. And I thought, you know, that's, that's sort of the secret to a long-term relationship. Leaving and cleaving and weaving is a process I must be committed to. Getting those welds, getting those joints, addressing that issue, talking through this point, making sure we're okay with this issue, and working it out strengthening those joints and those bonds. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 8, there's an interesting text that I want to close with. Jeremiah said, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, but we are not saved Jeremiah chapter 8. I think it's around verse 24. I'm not sure. Or 12. I forget. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. But we are not saved. Jeremiah was speaking about the hardship of Israel as the captors were surrounding them. But I want you to think about it in terms of where we are in this Summer of Love series. This lasted the summer. And summer's ended now. We're into the fall. Weather's changing, new activities. The summer is over. The summer is ended. And the cry was, but we are not saved. Where are you tonight in your vertical relationship? That most important one with God. Honestly, honestly, in your heart, as you examine it, How are you and the Lord? How is that relationship? Is it not so good? Is it just okay? Is it 
non-existent or is it great? And you're building on that. And how are your relationships horizontally with those that you love? Now, I've discovered something. I'm going to pass this on to you. It's a profound truth. Too many people spend all of their energy working on the horizontal. I've got to patch up this relationship and that buddy at work and that thing. And then there's this thing and my life seems to be falling apart as my relationships aren't doing very well. And all of our energy is spent on the horizontal. I'm suggesting something to you. I'm suggesting that first and foremost, you secure the relationship vertically before you do it horizontally. Because I have discovered that the vertical and the horizontal work like a fixed axis. If your relationship with God is off, your relationship with people will be off. Your relationship with your spouse will be off, your children, your parents. But when you straighten and have the right relationship with God through Christ, you discover that things fall into place easier on the horizontal. It's a principle, Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So tonight, rather than thinking, give me some tools that I can fix my relationship here or there, I'm saying make sure you and God are okay. Make sure you and God have a relationship that's real and based upon faith in Jesus where you've personalized it by receiving Christ as your Savior. And you'll discover that this can be your summer of love that will last a lifetime. Some of you, you've been eating hamburger helper for a long time. You don't know any better. You think, this is heaven. These TV dinners and this hamburger helper, who could want anything more? Boy, does God have a steak waiting for you. It can get a whole lot better. But he won't force feed you. You have to receive. You have to receive. He's the master chef, but you've got to order it up. He's already provided it, but you have to take it. And before we go on any further, as we bring this message portion to a close, I'm going to give an invitation on this beautiful night at the end of our Summer of Love series, as we're going into the fall, don't say or don't ever have it said of you, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, but we were not saved. Make sure that you are safe and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Richie's life was changed a long time ago. He was in that whole musical, iconic atmosphere of the 60s and 70s. Tonight, Today, he's a man in love with Jesus who likewise has received that great gift. And it's extended to you. So I'm going to say a word of prayer and then I'm going to give an invitation. And as, as, um, in just a few minutes, I want you to get ready to get up and come right here and stand. And I'm going to pray with you to receive Christ publicly. And then you can go back to your seat and we'll finish it out with music. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the great series from so many great pastors and teachers that we've had 
over the last several weeks. Thank you for the principles that you've clearly outlined in your word about singleness and dating or courtship and marriage and building a strong marriage and even divorce and remarriage. All of those are found within your word. Thank you for your great mercy toward us. Strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen the relationships of those who are gathered here. And we pray, Father, for those whose vertical relationship, their relationship with heaven, is weak or non-existent. Maybe some are here tonight and they just have a huge question mark about God and heaven and truth. And yet, deep in their hearts, they feel and sense compelled to come to Christ. That's your Holy Spirit working. We pray that he would work in an unmistakable way. And we pray that many here will come to know Jesus for the first time or maybe a recommitment. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm going to lead those of you who have come in a prayer. And prayer is just talking to God. And He'll understand you because you're going to mean it from your heart. So I'm going to pray out loud. And you're going to pray after me out loud. I'm going to say it out loud. Like couples do on their wedding day. They say vows out loud to each other in front of people. This is your commitment. You're, you're giving Jesus Christ the pink slip. The, the owner's slip of your life. You're going, here, I'm yours now. You, you paid the price on the cross. I'm going to live for you. So I'll pray out loud. You pray after me from your heart. Say it to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I give you my life. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead for me. I turn from my sin, from my past, and I turn to you as my Savior, as my Master. Take all of me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.